0: Hey, what's up everyone? My name is Casey. I'm the Port Perry site pastor and also our young adults pastor. You're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's get our hearts ready and settled, our ears open, and our posture ready to hear the message.
1: Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. Glad that you're choosing to join us again. Maybe you're in Pickering or Port Perry, Bowmanville. Maybe watching an Ajax. Maybe watching online. Maybe watching this days, months, maybe years later. I don't know. Wherever you are, whoever you are, you're most welcome uh, to today. Um, it was Father's Day, and uh, and my children were acting profoundly weird this year, and uh, they they came and said we have a really significant gift for you. And we're really excited, which they had actually never said like that, said that before. And I was like, okay. And they're like they were acting really weird and nervous and sort of anxious. I was like, what's going on? Then my wife came and I could tell that she was off. And so I was like, something is really up. And so then they said, okay, you have to stay here. They left the house altogether to go get this supposed life changing epic Father's Day gift. So I was there and then they came through the door and they yelled, close your eyes, close your eyes. And so I sat in our living room, I closed my eyes and then they turned the corner and they said, open your eyes. And in their hands was not one, but two kittens, cats. Let me tell you, at that moment, all the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control oozed out of my body. You see, I had said to my wife and my children two months ago, four months ago, six months ago before this incident, I did not want a cat. I don't hate cats. I know some of you think they're from the devil. I don't think they are. But I already had two dogs. I had three children and life was too busy. I could not take another pet. And there before me was not one cat, but two little baby kittens meowing. They literally hijacked my day to get the gift they wanted. Well, it didn't go so well. Then the next morning we got a call from the person who had actually given us the kittens. And one of their children, a little girl, had been devastated they'd given both away and wanted one back. And the person felt so bad and supposedly she'd been crying for 24 hours. And I was thanking God that God heard my crying and made a little girl cry so one of the cats could go back. But the other cat, uh, the other cat stayed. And um, they named him Moses. I didn't even get to name him, by the way. I was not pleased that Moses was in our life or my life. Cute, scrawny, barn cat. But you know how the story goes. This is like every single Hallmark film, right? Who's the one who ends up now loving the cat? Who's the one who sits and the cat crawls all over him like a dog and loves it? It's me. That's what's about to happen right now. God, through His Word, is about to give us a gift. And it's a gift we've already said we don't want. And as we receive the gift, it's actually not going to make us happy. It's not going to make us joyful. Actually, it's going to make us a little angry. But if we give this time, in other words, if you don't just stay with this sermon, but you listen to the whole rest of the book, it can turn into life and joy and an unexpected gift. Romans chapter 1. Halfway through verse 16, Paul starts with really good news, actually. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's got the power of God for salvation for anyone who believes, first Jews, then non-Jews. He said, look, I'm proud of, I have confidence in the Christian message I'm preaching. Paul knows our tendency, of course, as humans to be embarrassed or wanting to deny the truth and it costs us something. He's like, don't back down, he cries out. Don't turn, don't be embarrassed, don't be reluctant, don't be mortified, don't be humiliated, don't be silenced into compromise. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And like I shared last week, I love that Paul uses that secular word gospel, that Greek word, because again, this is a very old word. This was used when there was a war on and the side you were on won and a herald would run from the battlefield. Again, no cell phones, no, no Twitter updates, right? And they'd run and say, I have good news. I have gospel. We won. It was also used in, in context of royalty. When an heir was born to the kingdom. And that's why, of course, Paul and others uh, use the word gospel, because it encapsulates Christmas, the king is born, and Easter, victory over death, sin, and the demonic. That's the good news. And the gospel, that is the life of Jesus, the the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the physical resurrection of Jesus, and the results he gives if we want them, literally as it reads, is the power of God. This is where we get our word dynamite from. The gospel has sheer God-given power. It's dynamic. It's the environment where the Holy Spirit takes all of God the Father's calling and all of Jesus' work, past, present, and future, and infuses it into a broken life. And we get salvation. Salvation. We get saved from the just wrath of God. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We get saved from our sin and sinfulness in general and worldliness and the demonic and death. And Paul says it's for everyone, by the way. It's not one group or one exclusive group in first class and we're all, no, 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 everyone. This power, this salvation, this second chance is for anyone, but then he says, who believes or has faith. Another wrote, believes carry the, beliefs, believe carries the basic idea of trusting in or relying upon or having faith in. Salvation, this person writes, is believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Salvation comes through giving up one's goodness, one's works, one's knowledge and wisdom and trusting in the finished perfect work of Jesus. This is why Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.8, it is by grace that you get saved through faith, informed trust. It's not from yourself. It's always a gift of God, not by works, not by what we do, so no one can boast. Even think about the most famous group of Christian verses in history. For God so loved the world (laughs) that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have everlasting life. God did not send Jesus, his son in the world, to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. It's always about him, not about us. Now, Paul keeps going, talking about the power and the beauty and the joy of the good news. Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just like it's written in the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. Now, see that phrase, the righteousness from God. There are three different meanings in the Bible for that phrase, righteousness of God or from God. The first is this, it's an attribute of God. God is righteous. Psalm 56, the heavens proclaim God's righteousness for he himself is judge. The second idea is that the righteousness from God is a status you get as a human being, a legal status when he makes you right, even though we have not been right. It's like a judge saying you're guilty and you have a lifetime sort of appointment to jail, right? And then someone stands up and says, I will go serve the 40 years in the stead of that person, even though they didn't do the crime. That's the gospel. Something legal happens over you, though you don't deserve it. Think about you had a mortgage of $25 million. You couldn't pay it off in this lifetime, the next lifetime, and the next lifetime. And think about all the interest. And someone shows up and says to the bank, by the way, I am going to pay off the penalty. I'm going to get rid of the debt. That is impossible. I'm going to pay off the mortgage. Now the third way this can be translated is this, for verse 17, for in the gospel a righteousness done by God is revealed. In other words, God is going to make all things right. So which one is it? God as judge, him making us right or making everything right? The answer is yes. <laughs> God is in the right. He's judged, so we're sinners, but he still loves us. And we get right standing by God, through God, because of Jesus. And one day Jesus will return and make all things right. This is the good news. And when you believe, when you rely on, when you trust in Jesus and his work alone, you get right standing and forgiveness and salvation and the promise of God making things right. That's hope. That's powerful. That's salvation. Good news, good news, good news. And everywhere you should be saying what? Amen. Uh-huh, but then suddenly, verse 18, hits us like a gut punch. It's sort of like being on a roller coaster. This is incredible. I'm going to die. It almost feels like you're in a car crash at this moment. Like everything's going to crash and burn. But that's not the case. Paul, with great intention, with great pastoral and prophetic insight, now announces, announces the difficult side of God's news. He says that God's wrath is also real and is also revealed, and it is upon anyone who has been touched by, participated in, or lives in sin, which is mm, all of us. The end of chapter 1, part of chapter 2, and part of chapter 3, Paul is about to say, all of humanity, the best we've got, the worst we've got, good, bad, religious, not religious, spiritual, agnostic, atheist, fill in the blank, men, women, children, every human being is under the wrath of God right now. Paul says the righteousness of God has been revealed in salvation and the wrath of God is being revealed because of sin. Salvation is a two-sided coin. You need one to understand the other. As one pastor wrote, again, to the great offense of us very nice, very tolerant Canadians, a God of love must mean business when he declares a certain action of limit. After all, a law without consequences actually is no law at all. See, he says, a God of love must also have the capacity for anger. However, the wrath of God, what we're about to read about, is not the kind of bellowing, out-of-control anger we come to associate with abusive people. Paul describes the Creator's response to sin using a Greek word which means upsurging. When to describe wrath, it is a passionate expression of outrage against real wrongdoing. And in the context we're about to read, it pictures the passionate, righteous anger of God cresting the walls of heaven like a huge wave and spilling out over across the earth. Now, well, indeed it is passionate and an upsurging response, it is completely consistent with God's character, which is love. His wrath, without question, fearsome, but controlled, deliberate, measured, utterly just. His wrath is nothing less than a reasonable expression of his righteous character and his unfailing love when confronted with evil. It has long been the habit of human beings, he writes, to trade the one true living God for one of our own making, our fallen nature prefers a God, a creator, who does not hold us accountable for our wrongdoing and actually passively waits for us to reconnect our relationship with God when we've grown tired of our own sin. But God is not a passive parent. He holds us accountable for sin, whether we acknowledge his presence or not. And the the consequences of our rejecting his, uh, his, his law and him in favor of sin is far greater than we can actually imagine. Here's how it reads in Romans 1:18: The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven, cresting over heaven, against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Not is going to be revealed, is revealed now. See that word wickedness? It means when you break divine law. Like I shared in our Ten Commandments series, the laws of God reflect God himself. God did not wake up one day and say, I don't like murder, I don't like lying, I don't like stealing, I don't like coveting. No, no, they stem from him. They reflect actually his DNA. The Ten Commandments are divine DNA. So when you see the Ten Commandments, you're actually starting to see the character of God. He says no to murder because He's a life-giving God. He hates stealing because He's a generous gift-giving God. He doesn't like adultery at all because He's a covenant-keeping God. He says no to idolatry and other versions of God because He's truth. In other words, when we sin, everyone ready? When we trespass, when we go to places we're not allowed to go, even though we want to go there because the Creator has said no, when we sin and we break God's law, we actually assault, we attack God. All sin has a Godward force. All of us have done this. And Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed against our wickedness, we've all done it, and those who suppress the truth. Okay, this image paints a picture of humanity trying to keep the lid on a container, but what's inside cannot be contained. It's not passive, it's active, it's aggressive, and it's saying, I'm going to do what I want. One person said, this is like a little kid who decides to get his dog to sleep with him at night and his parents have said no. And when he hears his parents coming, he hides the dog in his toy bin and sits in the toy bin. And as the parents are trying to talk to the kid, he's ignoring the thump, thump, thump of the poor dog trying to get out. That's the human experience. Now, as we're trying to take all this in, the implication of that, and then the next three, 23 little words will override every single excuse we've got. Paul moves very quickly before any of us can yell out, that's not fair, and that's not right, and that's not true. He says, actually, even the created order, what theologians call general revelation, affirms this. He says, again, about all humans, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Hey everyone, it's plain. Nothing's hidden, Paul says. This is not a secret. You don't have to have like three PhDs. You don't have to be a great intellect to see this or see him. God has revealed himself. The act is definite. It's powerful. It's unequivocal. The knowledge of God is known to us in creation. We cannot know everything out about God in creation, but we can know there is a creator. He's a God of order. He's a mathematician. He's an artist. He's an architect. He's a moral God. You know, it's amazing, as you listen even to the most ardent atheists, time and time again, they say the fine-tuning of the universe and the earth is one of the strongest arguments. Well, of course, the order of the universe. To the idea that every single culture on earth has a shared morality about certain things being right and wrong, yet it was never taught. And our desire always to worship something or someone, God is revealed. Observation says yes, moral insight says yes, spiritual intuition says yes. I love what uh, Kepler, the founder of modern astronomy, wrote. He's the guy who discovered the, the three planetary laws of motion. He invented this little word we use all the time called, oh right, satellite. He says the undevout, the unbelieving astronomer is mad. It's why David said in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. No one is going to face God and say, you didn't say anything, and this is not fair. Paul keeps talking about the fallenness of the world. For although, verse 21, they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but in their thinking it became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened we have not done what we were supposed to do as humans, what we were made to do, to know God, to glorify God, to enjoy God, to be in relationship. No, no, our thinking became darkened. Our worldviews became dark. We became foolish. We became totally depraved, meaning sin has touched every part of our life. We're not utterly depraved, but totally. It's sort of like the reading of the charges continues. Although humans claim to be wise, they became fools. We have trusted in ourselves Oh, and we think as humans, we're so wise. We're on the right side of history. We're evolving. Look at all the advances we've made. And God says, no, nothing has truly changed. iPhones are not. You're still a fool. Now, what does a fool mean? One said Greek and Hebrew culture took the term fool far more seriously than we do. The Hebrew language uses no less than four terms to qualify the level of foolishness in a person. Each successive term is building on the quality of the last. According to Jewish thinking, the greatest fool, everyone listening, the greatest fool of all is a disobedient person who's the smartest. Sound like our culture? (laughs) The first meaning is lacking knowledge or practical experience. You're just mentally sluggish, foolish. The second is you're, you're callous. You don't care about the implications of your decisions. The third version, the worst version, is willfully closed to wisdom and being brutish and hurtful to others. But lastly, the person who is willfully rebellious against God is the most foolish. So Paul comes along and says, We're all fallen. Every human being is a fool. And the evidence of our foolishness is, verse 23, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. So instead of worshiping God, and instead of being in relationship with our creator and experiencing love, we've decided that we're going to worship his creation, not the creator. We love the artwork so much, but we don't give a rip about the artist. And we're saying that that type of obsession over here is good. Did you notice the order? people. And then birds, then animals, then reptiles. This is progressive deterioration. Why? Because this is the exact reversal of the order in Genesis 1. God creates low to high. We worship in the reverse, high to low. And we start by worshiping, oh right, us. People. And you know what's wild is the worship of people takes so many different forms. Secular humanism. I don't need God. I can save myself by my looks, my education, my progress, my politics, my philosophy, my rights. Human existence is evolving to a better thing. No, it's not. That's idolatry. Oh, by the way, idolatry is also found in this thing called religion. In all of its different forms, I am saved by my religious activities. And those activities which I do make me right. Oh, and then there's the whole group in the middle, uh, spiritual, and I gained, I'm i mindful, and I have spiritual power and insight. Do you know what's wild? I've shared this before. Large groups of people tend to be in one or two of these camps and think that the other group is dangerous in the problem with the world. But the wild thing is none of these things are from God. All of them at their core leave out God and leave us at the center. So again, the most devout Orthodox, kind, lovely Jew who prayed at the Wailing Wall today or the most devout, amazing neighbor you've got who's a Muslim or the Buddhist or a devout atheist who believes they're everything in science or the kindest spiritual person, we're all the same because human activity is at the center. That's the worship of people. I went into my garden this week, which I have not looked at all summer basically because we're still repairing the garage that was destroyed from last year. And when I went into my garden realizing how much work we had not done, I realized I did not know the difference between what was a plant, a flower, and a weed. I just didn't know. I mean, I knew some things, but most of them I did not. And then I found this beautiful vine, and it had all these stunning flowers. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then found out that that vine that had these beautiful flowers was the most dangerous thing in my garden and would choke out every other plant. See, that is the human condition from God's view. We have incredible beauty, but we're still bringing death. And we think the weeds are good and the plants and flowers are bad. We declare weeds great and flowers bad. But we all know something's wrong. You ever tried ripping up a dandelion? You know, so you go and you grab it, right? Everyone knows this. So you grab it. And if you grab it the wrong way, what happens? Well, it basically breaks off. And what remains in the ground? Everyone, what? The roots. See, secular humanism, and religion, and spirituality, it's all of us saying there's a problem, and oh, I don't know the difference between weeds, or maybe that is a weed, and I grab the weed, but I never take out the root. In other words, it takes a very special tool to actually get to the root. And what's the tool that gets to the root? Humanism, religion, it's Jesus. Paul says we worship people, then birds, then animals, we worship idols, and of course he ends with reptiles, because of Genesis 3, Satan is a snake. All of this leads to demonic encounters. And the farther and farther away we move from God, all sorts of brokenness begins to take place sexual brokenness, mental lostness, and then full spiritual death. Verse 24 Therefore, God gave humans over to the sinful desires of their hearts. As an example, sexual impurity for the degradation of their bodies with one another. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who's forever praised. Amen. God gave them over. It's sort of like God said, well, if you want to go down there, I'm just going to take my protective hands off and, and I'm going to not hold onto the boat anymore and you're just going to be dragged down the river of your own desires. You want to know why we're all under wrath? We worship and serve created things rather than our creator. That's sin in a nutshell. Now, Paul goes farther, verse 26. Because of this, God gave humans over to their sexual and shameful lusts. Even women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones in the same way men also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men, received in themselves the due penalty for the perversion. Paul chooses to expand on sexual sin by choosing one expression of this homosexual activity. Now, everyone stop, everyone stop, everyone stop. I know this is personal, complicated, huge. It's been deeply painful and Terribly handled. And by the way, this small group of verses, we can't expand this whole conversation. If you really want to have it, read my great friend's book, David Bennett, War of Love, or another great book by Sam Albury, Is God Anti-Gay? You can do that later. But what you need to hear is what Paul is doing here now. Don't turn off. Don't get angry. Don't walk out. Just listen. He starts by saying men and women. In Greek, that's a gender phrase, female and male. Paul, one writes, uses these Greek words to underscore the divine creation of human beings into these two categories. And the implication of a proper sexual conduct according to our creator flows from this distinction. It's what theologians call creation ethics. When God calls us to be rooted in what he did in creation before sin entered the world. Here is Paul's Jewish Christian logic. Adam and Eve in Genesis, in the pre-fall, is the model. That's why it's called natural. It was alone instituted by the Creator. Homosexual activity, as an example, men or women, is against nature because it's contrary to the pattern pre-sin found in creation. Marriage reflects the image of God. Like the Trinity, when a husband and wife have mutual sex, they become one, yet remain different people and different genders. They share the same fundamental essence, but remain two different people. The same sex act lacks this dimension. Now, hear Paul incredibly clearly today. Homosexuality doesn't trigger God's wrath. It's it's not worse off. I love when one person said, Paul is just endorsing the Old Testament and Jewish view that homosexual activity is a violation of the order of creation established by God for all people. Believers, I can't speak to the rest of the world, but for we who are followers of the God of Israel expressed in Jesus, believers ought to judge our culture by biblical standards and not force the Bible into the mold of our culture. Yet, 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 as we insist on maintaining biblical standards, don't you dare go farther than the Bible. The Bible never brands sin- uh, homosexual orientation as sinful anywhere. It just talks about activity. Nor is it clear that the Bible presents this type of activity as worse than any other. Yes, Paul in Romans 1 singles out homosexual activity for special attention. But Paul's purpose in doing so here is not because he regards this as some dangerous or more serious sin. He just shows this because it is a clear violation of the created order. So Paul comes along, and by the way... (laughs) If you're not offended yet, we all should be. Paul comes along and says, every human being, even the best of us, is under wrath. We're all foolish. We all worship ourselves. We're all involved in idolatry. And we give and give ourselves over and misuse our bodies and our minds in multiple ways that God says no to. And by the way, if you're really religious right now, and I, I'm not like that, just wait till next week. But even before next week, Paul says, oh, I, let's just be clear how big this is. He says in verse 28, Furthermore, since humans did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Oh, and just listen. So human beings have, become, have, have been filled with every kind of wickedness. Evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their moms and dads. They're senseless, faithless, heartless. They're, They're ruthless. Paul comes along and says, look, all sin, and by the way, sin is defined by our Creator, is serious. And every single person within the sound of my voice, including me, finds myself in the list I just read. Although humans knew God' righteous decree and those that do such things, verse 32, deserve death, that's spiritual death, they did not only continue to do these very things, they actually approve of those who practice them. We as human beings pat each other on the back and say, oh, it's okay. We know what's right. It's okay that you're doing any of this stuff because you know. Wow. Well, that's a lot to take in. And the question we need to ask is, what do you you think God himself is trying to say to all of us? Now, a whole group of you, again, who continue to hang out with us, who are searching and seeking, and you might be skeptical, and again, you might be Christian in name only, or agnostic, or atheist, or spiritual, or from another faith. What is God saying? Well, this is the gift you don't want to be given. This is the other side of the good news. He wants, of course, you to know that you can know God and know him personally, but we have to have a conversation about the trouble we're in. You'll never know you need a Savior unless you know that you need saving. And Paul has said, is going to keep saying, as one person said, God's abandonment is not the same as rejection. His goal is to show us how serious it is so we see the beauty of salvation. Like it or not, what I just read is you. It's me. It's your kids. It's my kids. It's your family. It's your neighbors. It's your coworkers. But God doesn't just leave us under wrath. One pastor put it like this Sin is not small, because it's not against a small sovereign, it's not against a small king. The seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. The creator of the universe is infinitely worthy of respect, admiration, and loyalty. Therefore, failure to love him is not trivial. Actually, it's treason. It defames God and destroys human happiness. Since God is just, he does not sweep these crimes under the rug of the universe. He feels holy wrath against them. They deserve to be punished. He's already said this. He makes this clear. For the wages of sin is what? Death. There's a holy curse hanging over all of sin. Not to punish would be unjust. The demeaning of God would be endorsed. A lie would reign at the core of reality. But the love of God does not just rest with the curse hanging over sinful humanity. He's not just content to show wrath, no matter how holy he is. Therefore, God does something incredible. He sends his son. Jesus agrees to come, by the way, to absorb the wrath we deserve, to pay off the mortgage we cannot pay off, to go to jail when we deserve it, to bear the curse for all of us. As he wrote in one of his earliest letters, Paul says in Galatians 3.13, Christ, that's Jesus, the Messiah, redeemed us from the curse of the law, By becoming a curse for us. This revelation, to use an old word, this teaching, this epiphany, this worldview violates everything we hold dear dear as kind, nice, tolerant Canadian world citizens. But this is truth. God calls you as a human to admit sin. Invites you to believe and trust in Jesus to forgive you. Because he wants to give you a new standing, and he wants to be your friend, and actually even co-worker with him, and he wants to be known to you as as father, and he wants to bring deliverance from lostness, from sin, from the deserved wrath of God, from spiritual ignorance, from our own self evil, evil indulgence, from the demonic, from death, from false religion, from thinking that we can trust in ourselves, to thinking that our rights matter more than our creator's statements. He says, he invites you. In Romans 10, right? Like, for if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you do with God? What do you do with your creator? What do you do with this truth-telling moment? What do you do with his expression of love? What do you do with everything you hold so dear? Now, This is only week two in a three-part series. And for many of us who are watching or listening to this now, that are followers of Jesus, there's a thousand implications and applications. But I think the real thing that I would like you to consider, to really consider this week, is this. This passage brings up the question, where does your real authority lie? Who gets to define truth? Who gets to define right and wrong? For you as a Christian, could you claim that Jesus is Savior, the incarnation of God and Lord, right? So does culture get to do it? Does your story get to do it? Does your experience get to do it? Does your education get to do it? Does your family and friends get to do it? Does your feelings get to do it? Does our mutual experience get to do it? Or does God's word get to do it? Who has the final say? Christians for 2,000 years have used this phrase that the scripture is the ultimate authority for faith, for life, and conduct or practice. Passages like this challenge us to really consider if we believe this. My invitation for you is to wrestle, to really wrestle with God, to really wrestle. If you're not a Christian, and really wrestle if you are a Christian, do you really believe in the goodness of God? Do you really think he has the right to say these things? Do you really think he's holy? Do you really think he's loving? And if you're a Christian especially, will you really live not above, but under God's loving reign and rule and word? The invitation is to struggle this week. Now, next week's going to get more interesting. You're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> Next week, we're going to have a conversation about why, what God thinks about really religious people. It's going to get really spicy and really helpful. But let me just pray a simple prayer. Uh, God, thanks for your Son. Thanks for your Spirit. Thanks for your Word. My request is that you would really speak to those who are not of faith in Jesus and we who are part of the faith in Jesus And there would be a great uncomfortability over the next seven days as we wrestle out you, your word, your lordship, your kindness, your judgment. Do a work that is totally unnatural. Where we might come to see that the gift that you're giving us, though it makes us offended and angry, might produce in us love and might allow us to experience a love deeper than all this other stuff. Lord, help us, we ask. Spirit of truth, lead us, we ask. Guard us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. You'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, Be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. Remember, we're all learning and growing, and we get to do it together. Let's stay in touch. Let's stay connected. I hope you have felt refreshed from what you heard today. God bless always, and we'll catch you next time.